Welcome to Pints and Politics. Pints and Politics is a podcast posted on pintsandpolitics.ptbopodcaster.ca. This is episode number 110. You can also listen or subscribe by searching for Pints and Politics on iTunes and Stitcher. We are also an occasional panel discussion program on Trent Radio, CFFF in Peterborough, Ontario, 92.7 FM. On Pints and Politics, we explore all things political with a focus on life in Peterborough, Ontario, and Canada. This episode was recorded on November 19th, 2021. Today, our focus is on Peterborough City Council and the municipal election that is now less than 11 months away. Joining me for this online discussion are a few members of our regular politics panel, plus a few guests. First, we have property manager and businesswoman, Jenny Lancio. Then we have Curve Lake First Nations Councillor and Ontario NDP Indigenous Peoples Committee Chair, Sean Conway. Then co-editor of Transition Towns Green Scene and Peterborough Bridges Volunteer, Cheryl Lyon. Then we have artist and arts advocate, Annie Yeager. And finally, we have LGBTQI plus activist and community manager and director of development for Rainbow Railroad, Dane Bland. Well, welcome all, and thanks for making the time to do this. So, what has happened to council over the past four years? What could explain how we got from the top-down approach of the Bennett years to the optimism of our new progressive council in 2018 to the apparent dissolution uh, of the current season? Of course, there are many narratives that could take us from then to now. But to launch this examination... Can we agree on the basic facts and the underlying dynamics that have resulted in the current situation? So, to my first question, before we get in forensic analysis of why things have turned out the way they have, could we build a shared narrative of the last four or five years for municipal politics in Peterborough? Now, bear in mind, this discussion will become a podcast and a radio broadcast, so some of our eventual listeners may know nothing about Peterborough and all our mysterious ways. So if we could uh, start with the fundamentals, the basics. So what has happened? This will have to be our collective effort, as the truth probably wears many masks to this dance. Of course, I have my version, but that version is sorted by the lens, lenses through which I see the world. Could we uh, put aside our partisanship uh, for the various causes and players just for the moment and try to land on the facts? So, could get us started. Okay. <laughs> uh, this is Jen. I don't know that a lot has changed since the last council. It's the exact same thing, just way in the other direction. It seems to me that there's the same amount of big egos sitting on this council that there was on the last council. They're just talking about different things. Okay. (laughs) You know, and I also wonder if people that are sitting on this council thought that Diane's four-year term was just kind of going to be a stopgap measure for them to gather some momentum for them to run in the next election. I feel like it's been four years of posturing for the upcoming election, says I. Others. Uh, I have a feeling that it's kind of like uh, the uh, blind people touching the elephant. 
um, you're, you know, they, they, you can say, oh, the elephant's like a rope or the elephant's like a wall or the elephant's like a tree trunk. It, it kind of depends on where you sit. But uh, in thinking about your question, I, I come, I, I come to, what comes to mind is a, a phrase that's very handy lately. And, that, and the phrase is culture eats strategy for breakfast. And meaning that the uh, uh, everything has a culture. A country has a culture. An ethnic group has a culture. A community has a culture. A family has a culture. And a council has a culture. And I've struggled to name what the culture is, but whatever it is, it's stymieing the efforts to do the good things. Good things have come before council. Some good decisions have been made, but overall, addressing the major needs, as I interpret them in the community, uh, we're not doing that. Uh, and this culture uh, that has been around for quite a while is just tr stymieing any strategy over a particular important issue. Okay. So I'll stop there. Okay, uh, others. Yeah, first of all, happy 110th uh, birthday of the podcast here, Bill. Uh, Sean here. I, I think when we're trying to build a narrative over the last four years and looking at governing administration, so one of the things that we really can't deny is the impact on, you know, pandemic policies on the ability for governance to happen. And beyond that, too, you can always say that good politics stops good politics from happening. And a lot over the last 18, 19, 20 months coming on has been so focused on the pandemic that it's hard to focus on anything else. Now, oh, 20 okay. months is, is a long time. But in the span of a council or any sort of governing institution, it's an instant and, and it's uh, all-encompassing. So uh, I think that that's another factor that we have to consider when we talk about the performance of any governing institution, um, whether there's a you know cultural aspect to it, absolutely. But the big challenge for any council has been the pandemic. Sean stole, this is Dane here, Sean stole my words. You know, I think it's, I, I do think it's, if you're asking me to put my partisan hat aside and my opinion aside, I think a kudos is earned to any public servant, period, pandemic, right? You know, this has not been a particularly easy time across the board for public service. That, with that being said, we can go on for hours disagreeing about how it was handled, uh, but it wasn't, it's not an easy time, I think, to be in public office and certainly not an easy time to be in council. And now if you're looking at all four years of council, pandemic inclusive, I think one of the stories that jumps out to me most of all, and it's kind of been, I think, touched on by a few other folks, is gridlock. You know, it feels like we're one vote. There's kind of these two sort of the more traditional camp on council, uh, some of the people who have been around for a while and some newer voices, and it feels like we're one vote on either side for, for business. And there are a couple of people who kind of sit in the middle of those two camps. Um, and so a lot, a lot of half measures and compromises in order to get, you know, the six votes or seven votes required to pass something kind of taken place. Like that to me strikes me as the story of this council is it's the council of almosts, you know, a whole bunch of stuff, almost a whole bunch of stuff almost got passed, and a few things did that that are that, that felt like compromises overall. I think that that one of the mistakes that happened right from the beginning was they put this group of people together and called them a team and expected that they were going to act as a team. And a lot of them came to the table with baggage that they never unpacked from the last council that was sitting, and that just seems to have 
carried forward into, like Dane said, this divisiveness that like every single vote seems to be a competition between these right. two groups. And I have to give them points that nobody's quit because I, I would find it exhausting myself. I would feel like they have, they've never gathered any momentum, like actually get things done. It, it has to be the most frustrating council in recent history to sit on. Right. Although a few people have announced they're not going to run again. And I don't blame them. Yeah. Like it's no, no. got to have been just exhaustive. Now, what have we learned about the role of women in local politics. Of course, city council has had many female members in the past, including a mayor, Sylvia Sutherland, who, who frequently joins this panel. But are women tolerated as long as there are not too many of them or they're not in, in positions of power? Um, Cheryl here. I, I had a little trouble with that question uh, in the sense that there seems to lurk in it an assumption that there's a group, um, shall I say, a male group doing the tolerating and therefore are in control. I don't want to think that, but women in any group where men dominate often face that. And sometimes the men don't recognize it and sometimes the women don't recognize it. But women in, in public life generally have, have um, are on the to name, but we're getting Okay, uh, there are obstacles, and, and we've been identifying those obstacles to women's participation in public life for a long time. And again, I'll use that word there, there is a different way of making decisions. There is a different way in, among women in making decisions than there is for men. Uh, maybe the men would disagree about that. There's a different tone to it. And it has to take place of men and women come together to to uh, to be a team. Uh, learning, learning a point, um, uh, it's time for Matt Lever chair even, you know. And I think um, men and women pay attention to different things, and which brings me back to the question of a shared narrative. We narrate what we pay attention to. So what has this council been paying attention to? And it's it's been a hard time to pay attention to the really big important things, climate change. Uh, and yes. at this time, municipalities don't have the same kind of power to address these really big issues and the same funding sources to address these issues. So it gets complicated. What, what are we paying attention to? And how do okay. we bring a, a concerted attention to the issue? Okay. I, th I think there's also... It's Annie, Annie speaking here. I think there's there's also been a bigger role of social media that's played in this yeah. council. I think that with the Trump sort of liberating the the angry the angry voices, uh, the angry male white voices, and allowing giving permission for those voices to be really active and undermining uh, women in particular. I mean. There's an extremely toxic environment for the women who are in power in the city council right now to the degree that they're pulling out of out of their positions. And, and that's a horrible loss for us because we, we were just having the first first opportunity to have, you know, not quite a, a, you know, half and half, half men and half women. But for the first time, we had, you know, a number three, three women on council, which was really the most we've had. So to to have them shot down like that so quickly is really just disparaging, I think. 
just to kind of touch on what Cher was saying about how men and women make decisions differently. I work in a solely dominated male industry and people disagree with me all the time, every day. I think what I'm growing weary of is what I am feeling like is this pop feminism. Like just because somebody disagrees with you, it's not because you're a woman. That That's, you know, like I, I feel like it's a very easy excuse to fall back on when people aren't agreeing with the decisions that you're making. Like if somebody, if a male coworker or a male colleague or whatever doesn't agree with something I say or doesn't think that I've made the right choice, my first instinct isn't to think to myself, well, if I wasn't a woman, he wouldn't think that. Right. You know, I think absolutely do I feel like there are times when women's opinions are diminished because of their gender, for sure. But I don't think it's all the time. I think there's a difference. Like, I think we're touching on kind of two things at the same time, right? Like, there's a, there's yeah. a difference, I think, between policy decisions based on policy, which in which case, feel free to disagree with someone. You know, there are big, people have different opinions on policy all the time. But at the same time, the, there are there is something in common with all three people who have announced publicly that they're not seeking election. They all happen to be progressive women who were elected on largely change mandates. And so maybe there's something to be said here for, and, you know, scroll through the hateful social media comments, the feeling of, the feeling is that it's okay, sure, be a woman in politics, but don't rock the boat. Don't push the envelope. Don't be bold. Don't, you know, fight back. You're not allowed to snap back at someone calling you out because then you're, you know, you get, the, the perfect example of uh, was uh, of this that springs to my mind is the terse exchange between um, Dave Smith and, and Meritarian over housing, which happened, I think, early on in the pandemic. It's a really good example of this terse exchange. Should either of them have been exchanging tersely on social media? I don't know. Not for me to say. Uh, right. there, I, I, I think a lot of people would probably say no. But the fact of the matter was when the exchange was finished, the criticism was levied extremely heavy-handedly on one side of the equation rather than on the other side of that equation. And it was levied very handed. There were op-eds galore all about how, oh, the mayor should have risen above. Well, so should the MPP. Um, the MPP should have risen yeah. above as well, right? And it feels, it seems to me like absolutely there's a sense of disagree with whoever you want to disagree with on policy and in, in the court of ideas. But in the court of public opinion, it feels like it's less okay to me to be a, a, a progressive, an envelope-changing, an ideas-driven progressive woman than it is to be, uh, you know, the, the privilege that um, I experience, for example, as a man eschewing the same progressive ideas. Nobody is in my, my social media comments calling me the B word or the C word or telling me to sit down and know my place. There's another issue for me that sort of is floating in the background, and let's, I have to name it here, is that do we perhaps have, and when I say we, the public, do we, uh, which uh, part of, do we perhaps have a distorted view of how much power city council wields? What is the balance of power between council, the mayor, and senior city staff? For example, under the Bennett regime, 
I had the impression that the mayor and at least some councillors gave directions to senior staff and the staff felt pressured to comply with such directions. Under the Terrian administration, have staff, particularly at the senior level, felt more empowered to push back and resist such direction from the elected officials? Maybe my rambling question boils down to simply this. Who's really in charge here and who should be in charge? John here. Um, I, I think, you know, before we tackle this, I think we should get and, and make very clear to, to folks how a municipality operates and how it operates ideally. So you have a mayor and council system. They're elected by citizens. And the mayor and council are equals. The mayor is just another voice and vote on council who happens to chair the meeting. They have one employee, and that employee is the top of the administration. And any, I would find it very uh, problematic if, if you were giving direction to anyone other than your one employee. You can't, uh, you can't mix politics and the administration. That's a really, really sort of toxic thing when we're looking at governing institutions. This is the same way that uh, things operate at Queen's Park. It's the same way things operate on the Hill. And it's the same thing that happens in, in all municipalities, at least in, in Ontario. And so understanding that that is the system and that's how it works is fundamental to having this discussion. So just keeping that in mind. I'll uh, let everyone else with the commentary, but just to, to build the situation. No, no, thank you. Uh, Cheryl here. Thank you for that, Sean. Uh, I was going to say something, and I couldn't have said it uh, as good as well as you did. Um, I've worked in City Hall, and uh, I was always very conscious of that um, description you just gave. And I've been doing a lot of thinking about about governance in general, and and where I'm going might sound a little theoretical, but um, I'm going to say it anyway because we're in the times where we need to hear some new ideas and new and do new ways of decision making. Uh, we we don't have much time, and we've got some pretty big decisions to make. What maybe we need is a shakeup of of that structure that you described, Sean, or at least an injection into it of a different tone or mood or something. And the only way I could come up with an illustration of that was to say, maybe we need to operate like the Earth operates. The planet doesn't have one leader. It's a very distributed load of power across the globe. Different ecosystems operate in different ways and they cooperate and they uh, interact with each other. And in the whole, they keep what we call the balance of nature, that one thing doesn't take over. And if it does, nature kind of takes care of that in the end. And so don't we need to look at more decentralized or shared power or decision making? Do we need to look at the interconnections of things uh, a little differently? Maybe a little more watershed thinking. And a municipal council is the governance that's closest to the people. And we do live in a watershed, and maybe there's some lessons from nature there for how we should be making our decisions and, and how we govern each other. Annie here, um, I think also what it, it's hard to really analyze what's happening on a city level, on a municipal level, 
when actually there's a lot of man- manipulation and influence from provincial level, for, for particularly. I mean, for example, in this administration, uh, the Ford administration has changed certain laws to make it possible to cut cut council. So theoretically, council uh, the Ford administration could just eliminate certain members of council, and they've also made it possible to um, override the, what is it, the municipal or the housing tribunal, the municipal housing tribunal. Mm -hmm. So it's hard for a municipality to make decisions of any sort, knowing that the province could simply intercede and overturn that, those decisions. So then you're sort of working in a, in a no man's land where you really don't know what what effect your your ultimate effect your your decisions are going to make so i think that also puts an extra level of pressure on on the municipal level and your funding is there's only two sources of funding really for the municipal level which is property taxes and provincial funding so that really affects how you can operate what choices you can make and what you know how you can move forward and you can't run a deficit Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know the, uh, the municipality. Just super quick, I know a couple, a couple other people want to chime in, but just right off of your point, Annie, you can't run a deficit. And I think maybe part of the gridlock between city council and the city administration is the city council want to do ambitious things, and the city administration says, "Well, there's this much money to do those things," and they cannot legally run a deficit, and it it, right. it creates problems. When we're talking about our own municipal council, and Sean made a good point that city council has one employee. Ours can't even get along with the one employee that they have. Like, they had a big falling out back in the summer with Sandra. And I don't know how you come back from that. And so how, like, how is there ever going to be respect on either side to finish out her term or their term or however long she's staying for? I don't even know if the woman is still at City Hall. But you have one person you have to get along with. Can you not just, like, get along for the sake of the city? I don't understand. I don't understand why it's just from one person to the next to the next. All this council has done is fight with people like deficits or staffing or any of that stuff. All of that policy stuff. That's all you have to worry about. You don't have to like anybody. You just have to be respectful of them. And we can't even get to that point. It's irritating. I just I find it's been really unprofessional, I guess. Yeah, sure. Just quickly, I wanted to add a bit more context into some of the things that that yourself and and Annie were talking about around the way that municipalities are structured. So absolutely, municipalities and cities are products of the province of Ontario. And an interesting, you know, conversation was had back in 2018 in the Toronto municipal election uh, after the cuts to city council. You can feel one way or the other on that issue, but particularly from the opposition to that movement was the push for charter cities. And I think charter cities is, is going to be the way to go moving forward for some of our bigger municipalities. Peterborough someday may fit the bill uh, for a candidate there. But again, looking at what are the sources of own source revenue for the city of Peterborough, other than parking tickets and, and, you know, provincial and federal transfers, there has to be an ability for the city to be financially sustainable and legislation that exists now governing cities does not allow them to do that. You look at um, the sale of uh, uh, Peterborough Hydro, I think was another big blow to the city's finances on the long term for short term gain. 
what use is a is a chunk of cash coming from one sale that um, you know it's only going to benefit in the short term where you lose you know sustainable long term funding and and ultimately makes it harder for the city to make any decisions. So I think it's just a product. Yeah, Sean, could you unpack uh, that concept of charter city a bit more? Like, what for me as a taxpayer, what would it mean? I think there's a lot of there's a lot of different things that would factor into rolling out a charter city situation, uh, particularly let's say the city of Peterborough, for example. So right now, the Ontario Municipalities Act is the piece of legislation which allows municipalities to exist. Ultimately, the charter city movement is about removing the responsibility of cities from the province and allowing these cities and municipalities to be self-governing. So there would be a lot of discussion around how that would work and and it would be a giant can of worms, but it's definitely a a conversation that should be had uh, in a lot of different spaces, probably at the provincial and federal level. You know, there's, there's an added bonus for taxpayers and citizens in a community with a charter city is there's more of an ability for taxpayers and citizens to to sort of a, like the financial accountability piece um, and all of that that sort of thing and more accountability on politicians and administrators is always a good thing. Where have does any jurisdiction North America, Canada, or the states have charter cities? I, I'm unsure about Canada, but I but for sure there are some charter cities in the United States. Okay. Um, uh, there might be a different situation in Quebec, too, with sure, Montreal, sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I can't speak to that. But what I would like to speak to, Cheryl here, is uh, that uh, thing about who's wagging the dog. Is it staff or council? You know? <laughs> That's and, good uh, and the And uh, it, it's, it's a perennial question in municipal government. Um, and what it looks like from the outside might not be what it was really happening on the inside. And I'll just as briefly as possible uh, try to uh, characterize with an example how the process works between uh, council and their staff. Uh, in brief, it's the old dictum of um, uh, staff proposes and council disposes. So a uh, council can request something on a policy level uh, or a budgetary level from council that goes on all the time, but staff can also uh, say to council, we think you should be paying attention to this. And that would be funneled to the CAO. The internal structure is um, a, a sort of administrative, a weekly administrative meeting. It used to take place on Wednesdays, I don't know. So if I had, for instance, a piece of policy around housing, I was social, administ- social housing administrator when the housing was downloaded from the province. And it was a really steep learning curve. And there were there were policy areas that were left to the municipalities to uh, formulate policy on. So I would kind of get advice from the constituents of the housing community. Uh, I had an advisory committee. Uh, there was policy needed. I would formulate a draft of policy. I would take that through my director, now called a commissioner. And we'd have a back and forth, and I would get that director's wisdom, and he would listen to, she would listen to me, and I'd take it back and rewrite it. And then it would go to the senior staff who were uh, um, formulating the council agenda with the clerk. So what's coming up on on the uh, agenda for the next council meeting or the first the committee meeting, the general committee? 
and uh, and what's most urgent? Uh, what is uh, it looks good at this time? A lot of eyeballs on on these uh, policy proposals. And sometimes it would get sent back. It would be kind of red penciled and saying, no, I don't really understand this. And you need a little more work. And did you think of this? And did you think of that? And then it would be resubmitted or it would find my it, policy thing would finally go there. And then I would show up on council night and sit there and wait to see what happened to it and answer any questions. But mostly it was the commissioner or the director who would, who would answer the question. And uh, that's kind of a characterization of how it worked. Now, into that mix, you get uh, personalities. Some of those personalities, and we know this from our very own families or our workplaces, are stronger than others. So they can be bigger champions and stronger voices. Or you have a director or commissioner who uh, um, carries the can on a particular issue and is very knowledgeable and very convincing. And then you get on the council side, a council uh, who have, has a lot of councillors who really, really dig into these stuff and they really hammer away at their decisions and others who just haven't had time or the interest or they don't understand it or whatever. It's a very complex way to, to make policy. But it, that's what we've got and that's how it works. And sometimes we get really good decisions and sometimes we don't. To shift a gear a bit, what have been the main priorities of the current council and what should be the main priorities of this and future councils? Now, if I uh, put in my own two cents there, my list would include affordable housing. I'm not quite sure what I mean by that, but economic inequality, job creation, pandemic management, and of course, climate change, both mitigation and adaptation. Instead, we hear discussions about the parkway and building a twin pad arena and a swimming pool. So I'm curious, what are, for the for anyone else in this panel, what are priorities are on your lists and how do they jive or not with what the current council is up to? I think that, I mean, it's interesting how there's six of us and six of us would have six different opinions about what priorities need to be. I think the things that you just mentioned, Bill, should be, like on the periphery and there should be awareness about them, but I believe in municipal government's job is to deal with infrastructure. So things like the parkway and job recre job creation and recruiting businesses to come to Peterborough and things like that. One of the things that drives me uh, a little up the wall that, uh, that we haven't figured our way around yet is pl the planning process at council. You know, we lack a really up-to-date master plan. We're, we're in the process of updating our transportation master plan. Absolutely zero things. You know, the, the current master plan on things like density requirements, infrastructure development, uh, on transportation, on how we build and grow and develop our community are antiquated. It's based on based on the, the world even over the last three years has changed so rapidly. Imagine what's happened over the last 10, 15, 20. So the fact that we, we don't have an up-to-date master plan, um, and I think the pandemic really threw a wrench, you know, to, to the to the misfortune of staffing council and everything. The pandemic threw a wrench in that process. But you know, I don't think we can address any issues until we complete an up-to-date master plan that builds the foundation to begin to address them. I think the you know the wheels turn so slowly. I went to a community two-day workshop thing, Dane, like 
probably five years ago about the master plan. Were you there? I don't, I don't, like it was so long ago. Yeah, like, I don't even know if I was there, but it was like, it went on and on and on. And they had all these expert speakers and you had to draw maps and like, you, and yeah. then that was the end of it. Like, again, nothing ever gathers any momentum, which is frustrating. Like it's frustrating when they ask for public input and people go and give their time and their opinions. And then, you know, I feel like in another couple of years, we're going to do the same thing all over again. Mm. But nothing ever comes from it. And, and, and how much would your feedback have changed if you gave it today versus five years ago, right? Zero. Because, uh, so, like, I mean. I shouldn't say, but like minimally, like the. Well, I, I think, well, okay, fair enough. But I think for some people, their feedback would have been wildly different. And so you can't build a new plan off of an antiquated feedback either. So I think there is a certain amount of expediency that's required here. But this is well, my. Exactly. This, this is just my whole philosophy anyways, is upstream like upstream thinking is required for downstream solutions. And if we're not building a foundational document or a foundational sort of set of guiding principles that help us do all of the priorities, whether that's infrastructure development, affordable housing, addressing the addictions issue, job creation, et cetera, none of those things can happen if we don't have a set of, a set of up-to-date guiding principles to inform those things. Um, and so it just, it drives me nuts a little bit that, that we're, we're still waiting. I know why, but it does drive me nuts. Yes, I mean, how is it that we've been so long without an official plan? I mean, it boggles the mind. Sean, you had your comment. There. Yeah, I think when we talk about priorities, we talk about the priorities of, of any sort of governance group. So look to things like, like climate change, like infrastructure, like service delivery, taxation, you know, roads and transportation. Just because something or something is or isn't a priority doesn't mean that it's not important. And I think that you know, looking at recreation space and the transportation problems in the city of Peterborough is really, really important. And and I think that, you know, the city operating recreational facilities is really, really important. I think that, you know, municipal climate uh, climate work is necessary as well. It's not it's not one thing or the other. It's it's all of those things are a problem for the city of Peterborough to deal with. And it's it's, you know, in, in my work as an elected official, I can't neglect one issue for another they're all equally important because that's what your membership your your citizens want you to work on they need you to work on everything and you have to represent not just the people that elected you so i think a maximalist approach is really really important and uh, it's hard to choose priorities because different things happen all the time and you've got to respond to each and every one um yeah well i think the problem with the official plan is that it's already obsolete. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I've like, like Jen said that I went to, I've been to multiple meetings of, you know, open houses and, and meetings and stuff to try to come up with. And much of it was, I would say pre pre-planned. I would say much of it is already in place. I don't think there was, I don't, don't think public input really had a whole lot to do with changing it, but, now we have a whole bunch of other problems, which I don't think counts. Uh, I don't think the municipality could have um, foreseen. I mean, the real estate market has gone completely out out of out, out of the stratosphere, and that has had a huge impact. Now, that's some, not something the municipality really has any power to change or do much about. They can't even really change things like you know bylaws that would would 
force people, force developers to put a certain amount of affordable housing in new developments. So their hands are tied in so many ways. And then you have the pandemic, of course, which made it more difficult. So these are all things that are, are coming. And plus, plus, I don't think, I think other, like, the U.S. does affect us. I think the whole, you know, the U.S. Polit- political situation does have an impact on Canada and how our society is working, not just society, not just our economy, but our society and how we function. And now we have this whole situation of uh, essentially housing refugees, which are moving, like we have huge numbers of people coming up from Toronto changing the demographics here our infrastructure is has done nothing to to set up for a new a new demographic of kids and and medical care we don't even have enough family doctors for the people we have now none of this has been addressed nor was it ever planned for and and i you know i mean i was surprised even like 5 years ago when when the last election happened that the councillors didn't seem to be aware of the fact that, that completing the 407 would have any impact on the uh, on the uh, nature of our of our population. And in fact, many people moved here to commute to Toronto because the 407 was completed. Um, but now, with the housing situation or the real estate situation the way it is, we have huge numbers of people coming and and completely changing the face of our city. I think that, you know, that that's something the municipality has no power to address. Um, uh, If I can pick up on, uh, Jen started off with uh, the word infrastructure, and that's always a really huge piece of um, uh, municipal responsibility, and it's really important. But none of its areas of responsibility, whether it's infrastructure or recreation or public health or or, uh, anything, should be done, uh, uh, decisions made about it, in the absence of priorities. And uh, Celia Sutherland, for instance, uh, had in her two terms uh, a a sort of a priority setting session with her council members. And they set out what are the priorities. And that, I know, has not happened, uh, at least in the the last two, this council. And uh, without those priorities, your decisions are, are ad hoc and in the moment and rather short-sighted. Um, for instance, uh, I was listening in on some of the Finance Committee budget meetings and um, uh, the, the chair was challenged on what are the priorities and his answer was, well, we don't have any priorities. And I was rather aghast at that because when all the various decisions come along, how do you fit them into the picture you have of the city that you want to, to build and to run? Uh, and uh, of course, one of the, my favorite priorities, and many people have mentioned it, is um, the climate crisis. And you could, if you use that priority, the lens of that priority, when it comes to infrastructure projects or any other decision, uh, uh, transportation, you say, how does that particular piece, infrastructure or master plan for for transportation? fit under that priority. Does it serve biodiversity? Does it preserve uh, a clean air? Does it uh, reduce our targeted carbon emissions under our own carbon uh, climate change action plan? 
That's just one example. So when you have priorities, you know how to test each area of your responsibility against this larger um, vision, really. So we're going to talk about the next council in a moment, but let's stay with these priorities. What should the next council get done and get done, like start working on, continue working on or start working on and be sure to make some progress on? Bill, don't you know that they won't be able to be elected unless they promise to do everything at all, like all everything under the sun. No one's getting elected unless they're going to do all the stuff, right? Um, and the swimming pool. <laughs> and the swimming pool, most importantly, the swimming pool. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, I think that maybe I'll take it out of, like, there's a lot, I think, that we could talk about the next council needing to do. Um, I think Peterborough... On the whole, Peterborough, to me, the way I've talked about it, it's kind of, we're kind of on this precipice where I think we can decide what kind of a community we're going to be. And we have, we probably have to make this decision within the next decade. You know, are we going to be a, a, a cultured community that, that builds and develops and sort of as we come out of this like post-manufacturing era in Peterborough, what are we going right. to do next? Like, what's the next thing going to be for our community? Because the manufacturing's gone. We're kind of not the electric city anymore, are we? And so it's where do we go from here? What becomes our next thing? And there are a few really exciting opportunities that we have. You know, there's there's a fantastic infrastructure of arts and culture in the city. Um, and, you know, and Andy, Sean, and we all know that really well. There's such a, an incredible inter- infrastructure of arts, culture, and tourism. There's a lot of incredible natural beauty in our community, and I think that that needs to be protected and preserved. You know, there's there there are. Uh, such a, there's such an unbelievable amount of science that's happening in Peterborough as well, kind of under our noses. I think Peterborough yes. has declared one of the top five cities in Canada to do water startup business work, you know, uh, startups around water technology and and that kind of work. What an awesome thing we've got going on yes. for our community. So how do we define the, how do we build the infrastructure for our community to define what it is in the future? Because we're we're not we're in a post manufacturing community, and otherwise we kind of risk being absorbed into suburbia if we don't start to define what is you know it's a culture eat strategy for breakfast. But we can define what the culture of our city is. What's the culture in the city in which we want to live in the future? Is it this suburban like like we're the next layer that just gets eaten by Toronto, or are we going to be self determinant and self defining and come up with something that's uniquely Peter? Yes, amen. And, you know, the point of uh, sprawling uh, suburbs, are we going to become another Oshawa? Are we going to become another Coburg uh, and eat up farmland and just expand? Or are we going to be something different? Jen, I'm sorry, I cut you off. I think what Dane is so diplomatically (laughs) trying to say is that the bottom line is we need to get focusing on, on some economic prosperity here in the city. And I know that for some groups of people, money and profit are four-letter words. But if we don't start bringing some money and bringing some industry mm-hmm. and bringing reasons for people to stay in the city, into the city, we're going to have big problems. You can already see it downtown. Like, you yes. you can see it. And you want to talk about things sprawling? What's happening downtown right now is just spreading out to all of the other areas from the downtown. And we have got to step up our game as far as bringing some money into the city. Maybe I'll put it less diplomatically because that's not 
that kind of isn't what I was trying to say. Well, because, that's, that was my interpretation. Sure, of it, so. that's fair. So I'll clarify that because Mississauga is like the fourth largest city in in uh, in Ontario, um, and it has a massive budget, and it has absolutely zero exciting things going on. With with no offense to Mississauga, really, but there's <laughs> no reason. It's a big city. There's lots of jobs. There's incredible development. There's industry. There are companies headquartered out of Mississauga, and I wouldn't want to live there if you paid me to. So what I'm saying is, what is the other stuff that makes our community special? Jobs jobs are necessary, um, right? But I think there is not going, no one's going to want to live in the community or stay in the community or work in the community if we don't define who we are, like, at, at our core, culturally. Um, and so I think that things like, you know, the forgotten about parts of, of, of our community, like environmental preservation and arts and culture, define what a city is and make all of the, the all the other stuff comes with that stuff at first. Actually, more what I was saying. Everybody that I talk to that has immigrated to Peterborough comes because of A, the natural environment, and B, the arts and culture. That's why they come. That's what attracts people to this city. That's what makes them stay here. Jobs are not, to me, not an important issue because if you have people who are coming to a city that have are, are creative people, then they create jobs, just as the arts community has created jobs and continues to inform the city, um, the city's economic situation a lot. But I think more to the point, the thing that the city needs to do is to get out of the 1970s. I think there's a mindset <laughs> among a lot of members of council, as well as a, a huge part of the population, that still has this delusional idea that we live in the 1970s and everything is going to continue on the way it was. We live in a society where you need at least two people to make a make a, a household and to be able to afford an apartment. Um, young people are are just are you know on the verge of homelessness. Many of them but they just don't have enough money, even working full time, two people to support a family. It's just insane. That has nothing to do with economic growth. That has to do with with real estate greed and and the um, the uh, commodification of housing that is happening globally. Really, it's not just Peterborough that's suffering from yes. that. So, and as far as job opportunities, I mean, God, we've got you know to start green industries. I mean that that could be a huge a huge industry. There's just so many opportunities there. It's not even funny, but it. But where is the where is the incentive from higher up? That's where I don't see any help from higher levels of government to to make that happen, unless it's through it's through a corporate lens or through an industrial lens, you know, to have a smaller business, to have food uh, independent food suppliers and uh, food security uh, infrastructure would be really important to have. A different approach to planning and housing development would be a huge industry. Uh, consulting. We've got two, two post-secondary institutions. We've got medical, a huge medical community as well. 
So I don't think it's a lack of jobs. I think it's it's more of the other things in, in, in the economy that have gotten so expensive and completely out of control and completely out of touch with with the current situation that is the problem. Sure. I mean, Annie, if I could just add a footnote, where I live in the, the avenues, I'm a bit embarrassed to say that, but let me spit it out. A house across the street uh, sold for $900,000. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. when Trudy and I moved here uh, 21 years ago, I mean, the house was a bargoon compared to the GTA. I, I mean, it's just stunning. I, I'm I'm strangling here to say something that I, I don't want us to run out of time because no, no. everything Jane and Jen and Anne have said is subsumed under the one big priority imperative that would bring them all together under one lens, and you know what I'm going to say, and it's the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. Because housing, the environment, the infrastructure, the jobs, the economy, everything, everything is now subsumed under that. And the only time in recent history that we've had a focusing priority like that is a world war. Yes. And everything that you're talking about, and it, it's so complex to explain, but once you, once you make the connections, I can't imagine the next council not doing this because they would be still stuck in the 70s. And if we want to bring Peterborough out of the 70s, bring it into the year 2021 and beyond by looking at everything through this emergency. We declared it, but it has no teeth. Uh, I could talk for hours on this. But the kinds of jobs that Peterborough is capable of doing with two uh, wonderful institutions like Trent and Fleming is, is right on the cutting edge of where the economy is going to go. We have managed to save our own energy generation and sold off our distribution. But with that money that's sitting there doing nothing besides gathering interest and protecting the very conservative uh, fiscal approach of the city, we could be doing amazingly local stuff around food and everything, and that never seems to enter the thinking of, uh, of enough councillors or enough staff. We have a climate change action plan for the for the city's facilities, its fleet, its buildings, all of that, and we have a very aspirational but no guts and no funding community sustainability plan that just needs dusting off and updating. So there we've got context, we've got policy, a fountainhead of policy. Okay, we are winding down, and I would be remiss if I didn't bring in the horse race aspect here. Now, this is me asking a question. I mean, it's up to you, the panel. Do we want to go here? So who is going to run for council, for mayor, and for all the council positions? Should we deal with the mayor first? Who's in? How about the six people on this call? I think we're going to see for mayor. I think we're going to, I think it's going to be a pretty big pool this time. They might not all make it to the ballot, but I think we're going to see a fairly, I don't know how diverse it's going to be though. I think we'll see Jeff Leal. I think we'll see Stephen Wright. I think we'll see maybe Leslie Parnell. Like for existing, maybe Don Vasiliadis. I would really like to see somebody that isn't already sitting on council, but I don't know how successful that candidate would be okay. to run. Like it would be nice to see. I, like I think, I think you'll see. Like 
besides the ones who have said they aren't going to run, like, I suspect it'll be all like the usual suspects, Hmm. you know, throwing their hat back into the ring. But for Mayor, it would be nice to see a little bit broader selection of people. But I think, yeah, like I think Stephen, maybe Andrew Beamer, I've heard. Really? Mm-hmm. Hen- yep. Henry Clark? Henry Clark, I've, I've heard. Henry Clark, Andrew Beamer, Jeff Leal, and Stephen Wright. But okay. that's just like, you know, I know nothing. So that's just <laughs> small town okay. gossip. So Leslie Parnell, like I know that last mm-hmm. election, I think her plan was that this election, she was going to throw her hat into the ring for mayor. Okay. What would be nice is, is, is if those people did throw their hat into the ring, it would free up a lot of seats on council, which would be nice. And maybe we could get some fresh ideas. So that brings up the next question. Who is, I mean, we have five wards, 10 councillors. Do, do we know who is running either as incumbents or as new people? Well, I can tell you who isn't running absolutely anybody I've asked. Because Int- oh, do say some more. <laughs> uh, because it, and I won't I won't reveal names or or who those people are. But there's a real lack of interest in, in doing it, and I think that that's a huge problem because it really opens the door up for a lot of same same or a lot of people who are going to bully. Like if you're looking at the mayoral race, for example, like you know as as Jenny was saying, there's not a lot of diversity or of new faces in that. Right. There's in there. And, and I think it, unfortunately, for, you know, it's going to take someone with a heck of a lot of money to break in to that kind of establishment group, which really precludes a lot of maybe qualified, smart people from doing it because it's expensive to run a council race and it's expensive to build that infrastructure. And I think it unfortunately prices out a lot of people who could maybe really make a difference. And the same thing with council. And, you know, especially I think coming out of the pandemic, you don't make a heck of a lot of money on council and it's a, it's a part-time job. I have air quotes. And so I think, I think to the, to the detriment of a lot of people's careers, right? I think that's going to create a massive problem. I think we're going to, we're going to really lack qualified and interested people in doing it because they just might find it too hard. And and after all the social media, these social media stories that you're hearing in the media, and the media is making a lot of how hard it's been for uh, councillors Acapo and Zippel and Mertarian um, in their runs. There's a lot of stories about the social media and everything. I sure as heck wouldn't be excited to put my hand up if I was a progressive person reading it. I'm reading all of those news stories, right? I think it, I think it, I, I really am worried. Mike, you brought up the question of money, Dane. Uh, I asked one of a, a previous mayors uh, whether we should have a full-time council. And that mayor said, yes, but it would be too expensive for the taxpayers. So I guess maybe we get what we pay for. It is very, very heavy workload on a council and could be very career limiting because of that, as you said. My end of the spectrum is well served from the council. Uh, But what about people under 40, under 30? I mean, where is the representation? And from what you're saying, is that a tricky under 30 set? Are they completely turned off from city politics? 
I, I, as a 28 year old, uh, and I have since, you know, uh, summarily failing my own race in the liberal nomination, people are like, well, now you get to run for council. Uh, absolutely, I do not, uh, because uh, I can't afford to do it. I can't afford to take that time out of my day job. The advantage to running to be an MVP is the goal is to get a full time job at the end. I cannot spare the hours. I work 60, 70 hours a week in my day job. I can't spare the hours to also work 60 or 70 hours a week to be paid for 20 of them on, on council. It's not, and and I've already failed a mortgage stress test, you know, in the community. I, I work, like, I have a fantastic, well-paying job. I make more than the average Canadian does. And I'm extremely privileged to do that. And I cannot buy a house. So there's right. like I have to start thinking about what happens in my life from here, right? And every single person in my peer group, it's the same thing. So I would be absolutely jaw on the floor if someone under 35 stepped up and did, did it. I'd be really surprised. I think what people aren't aware of is that the under 35s are actually busy building their own sort of alternative um, structures to support their communities because the the current structure really doesn't support them. And I, I unfortunately anticipate a very conservative back to the old boys club kind of return in the next, in the next election. And I don't see too many women stepping up because they know that they're just stepping into a, like a rat's nest of of venom and misery. So it it really, uh, it really skews what is possible for, uh, plus the, the, always the emphasis on the businessman. The business, the person who knows business is supposed to be the person that can lead us both best. But what about people who have imagination and have an ability to, uh, who, who look, look beyond our city limits or studying city planning in Europe and and other places and look to other models? Like you need people like that to be running in, in government, but I don't see anybody in that realm in this neighborhood at all. All right. We are winding down. Any last words that people have for this council? I think there's a couple of things. Not that it carries any weight. Maybe it's just because they didn't like me, which I don't really care. But during the last election that I ran in, the only people that I got any venom from were other women. Just putting that out there. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. You want to talk about mean girls? (laughs) Throw your hat into the ring to run for, for municipal politics. Aside from that, I think the most pivotal thing that anybody said was Sean during this whole podcast, and that was when he said that when you are an elected official, you are representing everybody, not just the people that have voted for you. And I think that that is the biggest mistake that this sitting council has made, that they have forgotten that once they are elected, they are working as a team and they are representing the entire city. Whether you like me or not, because I build expensive apartments, should be irrelevant. It shouldn't matter. You are representing everybody. And perhaps that's something we should have shared at the beginning. I mean, Sean Conway sits sits in the Kerbalinka Bank Council. Jenny Lancio ran council last time. I ran back in 2014. Dane uh, put his hat in the ring for a liberal uh, nomination for the Ontario Liberal Party. Uh, Cheryl and Annie, I don't know if either of you have run. Maybe just quickly, um, I, 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 you know, regardless of, of how the situation has gone over the last term and, and even moving into the, the next term, it, it takes a lot to serve your community. 
And whether we thought that was good or bad is, is again, irrelevant. It's very difficult on the person, and I commend them for putting their name forward and being there. And I hope that everyone learns something from from public office. It's it's a really, really valuable experience and wishing everyone the best moving forward and, and all the best to the new council and all the best to the outgoing council as well. It takes a lot to, to do these things. Uh, you know, a number of us have run for office or hold office and it's a really important and challenging and exciting thing. So it's great. Fair enough. And just in closing, I should make reference to a, a thread on Twitter that I would have liked to have gotten into, and we don't have the time, as from uh, from Sheila Strickland. You certainly look her up on Twitter. It's a 12-post thread just about the evolution she's seen in city council and where we've got to uh, and her, inter- her, her take on uh, the current situation, well worth looking at. Anyway, all that being said, we are signing off here. So Jenny, Sean, Cheryl, Annie, and Dane, thanks so much for joining me on this panel discussion. You've been listening to episode 110 of the Pints and Politics podcast. This discussion will be converted to a radio broadcast on Trent Radio 92.7 FM, CFFF, in Peterborough, Ontario. We post on Twitter at Bill Temp and on our Facebook page, Pints and Politics Podcast. We're also available on iTunes and Stitcher. So until next time, this is Bill Templeton.